you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Uh, like us, right? We, we, we find a common interest, a common denominator, and we, we tend to group up. Uh, on, on the good days, this is, you know, an affinity group or a club you're part of. On the bad days, it's a clique, right? It's a, a toxic mean girls group or this or that, right? There's, uh, there's this desire to be part of something that can be good or it can be bad, right? Well, we concede that. Okay. My high school uh, had the toxic kind. Uh, I went to Farmville Central High School in the middle of uh, nowhere, Pitt County, though I would claim Greenville as my home. Greenville is where the university is and the hospital and all these beautiful things in my mind, and Farmville is out there. But that's where we had to go to school. But the power dynamic at Farmville was such that if you grew up in Farmville and lived in Farmville and went to Farmville churches and to Farmville things, you're one group. And if you went to the Falkland schools, which is where we were bussed out to, and if you uh, lived in Greenville and you weren't part of the Farmville things, you were on the outskirts, right? That's not super fun, but hey, it's the realities. Uh, By the time I get in college, I'm watching for groups, but I did my undergrad completely online. No groups to worry about there. But but from TV, I hear that one of the primary uh, groups on campuses are people who do Greek, and people who don't do Greek, right? And then amongst that Greek group, you've got ones who are part of this fraternity and this sorority, and and they form this kind of family. I did my MBA on campus at night with older people like me, right? So uh, this isn't uh, fresh out of college. This is people who are kind of continuing in their careers, and uh, we formed different groups. Uh, You had the people who uh, were all about accounting and thought accounting was the most important of the, the business sciences, right? This is embarrassing to admit that, that this, is, this is our affinity groups, but uh, people who thought that like supply chain logistics was the most important part of, of the business school. And then you had what I really think is the most important business part of business school was the finance people, which is what I was part of. We were definitely the coolest group in the MBA program at ECU. Uh, we had our own calculators that we had to buy, the HP 12C, I think it is. It was like a $100 calculator, and the professor made you get this financial calculator as if when you were doing financial advising, you were going to sit there and pull out this calculator and like uh, calculate return on investment instead of pulling up their dashboard, right? But we were, um, it was the first time I was part of the powerful group, right? The, the cool group. And then I came to seminary and discovered there are groups there too. There are the people who do um, counseling as their major, and there's the people who do intercultural studies, and they're pretty cool because they're like engaging group dynamics across like um, demographic lines and uh, thinking more broadly about how the church can be more inclusive. Uh, And then you've got uh, theology nerds and Bible nerds, and then most of the students get an MDiv. This degree is just completely general. You don't specialize in anything. It's like a Um, I heard somebody describe it once as every other degree at the seminary is like a sniper's rifle and the MDiv is like a shotgun. You just kind of scatter a little bit of everything. So we had to find ways within the MDiv program to to group. And some people grouped according to if you were married or if you were single, if you were in uh, family housing or in uh, this housing. But I found a new seminary group that nobody will admit that that, uh, 
is part of the dynamics. Your favorite gospel. You think, I'm, you think this isn't a thing, but it's got a deeper meaning at the seminary because uh, you come in, most people have come in from some other undergrad, right? Uh, psychology or business or uh, they decided they didn't want to be a teacher right as they were doing student teaching. I mean, lots of things we switch uh, to seminary for. And who you have for your first Bible study class often shapes which gospel you love the most. If you're fortunate to sign up for inductive Bible study, New Testament 510 with Dr. Uh, David Bauer, you love Matthew. I had Dr. David Bauer from Matthew, and it is, it is, a, it is an amazing gospel full of uh, ties back to the story, to this story that we want to tell that, that connects Jesus' story to the story of Israel. And so I became a Matthew snob. Felsha took Dr. Joe Donjel for NT 511, Inductive Bible Study of Mark. She has no time at all for Matthew. Mark is her favorite gospel. It's quick, it's fast-paced, and she learned it in Dr. Donjel's way. This is the primary two favorite gospels of seminarians at Asbury. John, if somebody tells you their favorite gospel is John, they probably grew up as like a missionary kid or they went on lots of missions trips or they're very evangelistic because this is the gospel you share with people who don't know Jesus, right? Amelia's shaking her head. She knows what I'm talking about. That like this would be what you would give somebody. Read this first. So they probably have a different experience. Hardly anybody says Luke. The only person that would say Luke is their favorite gospel at the seminary are people who got a Bible undergrad. And they're a different breed all entirely. They're the ones who come in that first day of seminary where I'm literally just thinking about what I learned on the flannel graph, right? Like, what, what is this about? And they have all these cultural things and this understanding of the, the heresies and uh, what does it mean for uh, Mary to be pregnant and the Holy Spirit be part of this? And they're freaking me out. But they're the ones who like Luke. Most of the people from Asbury aren't ready to preach from Luke. We spend all of our time in Matthew, and we spend all this time over here. And that was great when we did the year with Jesus, right? This was back in uh, 2020. We started it off when things were normal, and we continued this year in Matthew. But now the lectionary has us in Luke's gospel a bunch. And Luke's gospel is great if we can admit that we love it. Uh, The story of the prodigal son that we preached a couple weeks ago, if you need just the gospel to hand somebody, just give them that story. I bet you love at least part of Luke a lot when you come to Christmas time and, and if your family had a tradition of maybe reading the Christmas story, at least part of it comes from Luke, right? Luke has become a favorite the more I've studied it. My friend uh, Jason taught an act study here for us right at the beginning of Pandemic Online, uh, and so I was trying to get situated in the book of Luke, and I, I did more reading on it and, and became more uh, profoundly impacted by the, the gospel of Luke. And it, 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 it's much like the others, has its own purpose, right? Matthew's gospel is uh, primarily about uh, helping an audience recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one of God's hope. Mark's primary purpose is in a fast-paced narrative to paint a picture of Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, it has this uh, messianic secret. Jesus is like, don't go tell anybody that you figured out I'm the Son of God. But this is the whole purpose of the narrative, John's gospel really is just this beautiful, loving, warm and fuzzy gospel full of Greco-Roman rhetoric that speaks in a whole different way. Instead of uh, through uh, rabbinical argumentation, it talks through 
Greek rhetoric. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And before things were created, there was the Word, and the Word brought forth all things that were created. And then there's Luke's gospel, which helpfully actually tells us why it's written, right? None of the others say, here's the reason I wrote this book. But Luke's gospel does, starting in verse 1. Many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. We know from the book of Acts that Luke is a traveling partner of Paul. He is, uh, at least in tradition, uh, a physician. He is um, well off. He is uh, able to go do this ministry. And it seems that later in his ministry, he becomes a professional writer. Theophilus, um, by being my dear Theophilus, we know that Theophilus has paid Luke to write this book, to write an orderly account of the Jesus story so that uh, Theophilus and his reading buddies can get together for their reading group. And somebody who can read is going to read this book to them. And so uh, Luke has this benefactor who really is probably paying for some of his travel to go hear these stories and get these accounts. And, and he's got all the Paul stories because Paul uh, has been, they've been traveling together. And, and so he writes this orderly account as the book of Luke and the book of Acts for Theophilus. Theophilus doesn't sound like a Hebrew name, does it? Thanks, Marilyn. You're the only one who shook your head that I saw. Theophilus sounds like a Greek name. So it's got lots of um, appealing to the Greek version of the Old Testament. They don't, they don't use a lot of Hebrew words. You'll see in today's text, there is no Hosanna. That's a Hebrew word. In this text, we get a whole different cry. In the book of Luke, we get um, lots of callbacks to Israel's story, but not this explicit, like, let's tell you how Jesus uh, is part of Israel's story. Right. Does this make sense? Amelia, you are an affirming person today. I love this head nods over there. I told Bill I wasn't sure if this was an eight-minute sermon or a 28-minute sermon. I'm at, I'm at 10 minutes now, and I'm just, I haven't even gotten us to Palm Sunday, but I will get there. Okay, I promise. Because I got excited this week as I was looking at this. I was ready to bring out a whiteboard, but I couldn't figure out the technology of how I would do a whiteboard here that you could then see on the screens or that they could see on there on the cameras. So I'm, I'm, I'm winging the technology today by not having any. Luke's gospel kind of strips back the Hebraisms, the things that are explicitly um, Hebrew, and yet in no way strips back the Jesus story as part of Israel's story. Uh, the early church uh, had debates about what should be in our Bibles and what not, right? They're, they're sending letters back and forth, and they're telling stories, and whose letters and whose stories should be in the Bible, and different people have different ideas. And one of the great earliest heretics was named Marcion. Marcion thought that the Old Testament God was an angry, nasty, vengeful, violent God. And Jesus was a whole separate God here in the New Testament. And he was loving and happy and full of grace, right? Not right. That's, that's probably not always, should not always be my catch. Because they're actually the same God. But Marcion thought they were different. And so he said, we need a New Testament that is devoid of anything that is quoting the Old Testament or that seems to uh, like really like the Old Testament God. So for Marcion, we only get about half of Paul's letters and then we get Luke's gospel. He thinks Luke's gospel is sufficiently Greek, sufficiently Jesus-centric. Not enough, not, not too much calling back to the angry God. 
book is fascinating if you can become part of the nerds who like Luke. It's a powerful, powerful gospel that, that invites us into some different nuances of the text. We, we think of Palm Sunday, and we think about it from a different gospel. We think of palm branches and hosannas, right? What do, what do they wave in the reading that Darren did today? Nothing. Nothing is waved. Uh, some people take jackets out and use them to prepare the way. And they don't shout Hosanna. They shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, right? This passage is fascinating. And this is where I need the whiteboard bill. Almost every single line of this passage is calling us back to something in the Old Testament. So without a whiteboard and without a screen, we're going to walk right through this text and, and paint a picture of what is actually happening in Luke's account. As Jesus came to Bethpage and Bethany and on the Mount of Olives, he gave the disciples a task. Already, we've got an Old Testament callback. In uh, Zechariah 14.4, there's this kind of declaration that the Messiah will come to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And Jesus doesn't have to say, or Luke, sorry, the Luke, uh, Luke's uh, recounting of the Jesus story doesn't have to say, like they said, uh, Jesus is going to come from the Mount of Olives, right? He just says this. And, and for the the Greek listener, okay, cool, he came from the Olives. But for somebody who was familiar with Israel's story, they go, oh, the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And he gave them a task. He said, go into the village over there. When you enter it, you will find there a cult that no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it to me. This calls us back to Zechariah 9.9, where it talks that this king will come riding on a colt that has never been ridden. This, this detail has escaped me my whole life. I've heard this story at least 40 times, right? A colt that has never been ridden. Who are horse people? Not me. Okay, we got some horse people. Some people, you don't just get on a, a colt that's never been ridden and ride it down a, a stretch of road, Right? You're going to fall on your butt and you're going to get hurt if you try to jump on that thing. So somebody's got to break this. And, and the text says that, that the king is going to ride on a colt that's never been ridden. And again, Luke's uh, reader either goes, oh, cool, he rode on a colt that's never been ridden. Or he calls back to Zechariah and goes, the king was coming from the Mount of Olives and is going to ride on a colt that's never been ridden. And the disciples do exactly what they told them to do. They, they go into the village and they ask for, the, they go find the colt and they go to take it. And the owner is like, hey, what are you doing? And they basically say, we're stealing your colt because we're going to take it for the king. And the owners don't object, right? I mean, this alone is, is fascinating to me that um, we're just going to take your colt and go away with it. That doesn't work in Kentucky, does it? <laughs> I've seen the Dobermans at some of these horse farms. You don't go take a horse from somebody and then say, oh, the Lord needs it. Um, but they let him go. So they untie the colt and they go and uh, the master needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and they put their clothes on the, on the colt. That's good. There's no, this thing has never had a saddle, right? Saddles aren't really a thing then. But they put the, the coats on there and get Jesus on there. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. I thought about asking all the men in the middle row who were wearing jackets to take them off and throw them in the middle, and then I would do like a sign act and walk through the middle by their coats, but it felt a little weird to be like, Ray Hornback, would you take your coat off and throw it on the floor, and Jack Whitney, would you do that? But you get the picture, right? They're, they're taking off this thing that is valuable to them and laying it on the road, calling us back, as you know, 
to 2 Kings 9.13 when Jehu is made king of Israel. And, and what we read there is that the tradition was when there's a new king, you uh, usher him into town by placing your coats on the ground in front of him. If you didn't know that in the story, that's great. But if you know Israel's story, you begin to hear this, oh, this king is coming from the Mount of Olives, riding a colt that's never been ridden, with people laying out their cloaks in front of him. And you start hoping. You start thinking. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You can't even do their whole statement without having to stop. Because this calls us back to the psalm that Darren read earlier. Psalm 118, this, this blessing of uh, the monarch, and, and they jump right into peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens, which calls us right back to Psalm 148, which is this call for global praise that God is so good, we should declare the peace of heavens in the world. And, and if you're just standing uh, as, a, as a Gentile reading this passage, this is just a beautiful uh, story of, of them crying out in praise and adoration, right? But if you have Israel's story, this is the language of worship and, and glorifying the one true God who is, who is, as it seem, seems also this rabbi who is uh, coming into town on a colt that has never been ridden with uh, jackets on the road in front of it coming from the Mount of Olives and maybe, just maybe, maybe it's happening. So some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. This is Habakkuk 2.11, this picture of uh, God condemning the Chaldeans, this neighbor of Israel, for how vile and wretched they are and saying that even if I stopped, the stones would cry out in anger about how wretched you have been. And uh, this gets flipped in Luke's gospel to, to even if the disciples stopped proclaiming this good news of the king who would ride in from the Mount of Olives, who would ride on a colt that has never been written, who would uh, go down the road with the cloaks laid out, who would bring the glory of God, not only that, if none of that brought you to, sh to shouts, the, the inanimate objects would cry out for how good this is. This is a big deal to Luke. And this is a big deal to, to Jesus' disciples. This is an uh, IBS language. If we're doing inductive Bible study and you learned this in Matthew or Mark, not in Luke, but if you translate this over here, Marilyn's learning inductive Bible study right now in Discipleship Intensive. If, if you study this, this is a turning point moment. Jesus in Luke's gospel is primarily geographically based. In the beginning of the gospel, we get all these stories about baby Jesus in Jerusalem, right? They're all the ones you're familiar with. And then uh, things get bad, and so Jesus' family goes back home to Nazareth to Galilee. And for the rest of the gospel, there's this winding story of Jesus getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's, he's going back to where it all started, to this place that is, um, is the seat of Israel's hope, that they believe God is going to restore the world from this very place. 
And in Luke's gospel, it's entirely geographic. And, and so it makes entire sense that Jesus would triumphantly in, enter into Jerusalem and that at this moment, conflict would be at its highest. This is not some outskirt town. This is not, um, frankly, like up in Nazareth, it's kind of hit town, right? This is those people up there. It's like from Farmville, right? At least Greenville people thought Farmville people were that. I, it's a whole thing. But Nazareth is one thing. He is triumphantly entering into Jerusalem, the very epicenter of uh, worship of Yahweh. And at least in these sign acts and in these things he is doing, he is calling back to every part of their story to say, I am who you think I am. Done are the days of being quiet about this. We're going to mix our gospels a little bit. No more, don't go tell them. Now, this is coronation time. And he comes into town and they say, blessed is the king or blessings to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the whole story just speeds up from there. In John's gospel, he comes into town and then we immediately go to dinner. The very God above. And he challenges the leaders at every single point. If they weren't ready to kill him when he was up at Nazareth, they are ready to kill him now. The conflict has gone from uh, a skirmish off on the sidelines to you must die. And the people are shouting adulation and praise because they think he is coming to do exactly what the Old Testament has suggested that he's going to come to do, which is to liberate them from imperial impression. This is the point in the Marvel movie where Captain Marvel gets the extra power and can come and burst through the alien ship or where Thor gets his hammer of lightning and can bang in the ground and knock everybody out. I don't have any older movies that I can think about that are superhero. But this is what happens in superhero movies. This is the moment where he gets his power and wins. Except for it's not, right? This is the moment where it's more like Doctor Strange who says like, there's only one way. If you haven't seen these movies, you really should. Uh, there's only 22 of them to get here. And I'm sorry, Amelia is called up, so I'm getting there. But Dr. Strange says there's only one way. There's only one possible way that we can undo what has been done. This is gospel, y'all. You don't have to stretch it too far. I used to think you could make any movie into the gospel. Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, worst movie ever. I can still tell you how to get the gospel out of it. But this Marvel thing at the end, it's gospel story. There's only one way to undo what was done. And as we know, and Amelia has now caught up to, it looks like Iron Man dying. They're ready to shout Jesus' praise when he's coming in to be the triumphant David king who's going to ride in on this unbroken animal and break it, who's going to come in and take his throne. And then Jesus, after he tears apart the temple, goes and eats dinner with his buddies. This mask kind of begins to push away. We get the picture of uh, the religious leaders ready ready to fight. And then, one by one, things kind of fall apart. Judas betrays Jesus over to the guards. Peter denies them. And, and before we know it, everybody except the women, man, these women are key to the story. You nod, you nod powerfully over here, okay? Because the women never leave him. 
for the masses to have been waving palm branches or to be setting jackets out, depending on which version you're, li- you're, you're reading, to now have the women, which is not a big group, who are, who are still committed to whatever Jesus is going to do. And instead of, instead of David and their mighty men, they get this Jesus who goes and dies. How, how could he possibly come from the Mount of Olives? How could he possibly ride this unbroken colt? How could we possibly have these jackets out here? How could we possibly have, have uh, been singing these praises of, of God as the most powerful and, and God is the one who will rescue and redeem and he's dead? The women and a few Pharisees remain faithful. We, we read this back with Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea joining the women to go take care of Jesus' body. The disciples go back to fishing. Literally, Jesus has not even fully come, come back into their lives. And in John's gospel, they are hanging back out on their commercial, commercial fishing vessels. That was getting to be a tongue twister for a second there. They're back to working the family trade because this was all for nothing. He was just another fake Messiah. And it takes one more miracle of of that Easter story for them to come. And I love in John's gospel, we're going to mix our gospels up here. In in John's gospel, when when Peter betrays him, they're by a charcoal fire. This word is only used twice in the gospel, or in any of the gospels. They're by a charcoal fire when Peter denies Jesus. And then they've gone back to fishing. They've gone back to working for money because this gig is up, right? And Jesus makes them breakfast by a charcoal fire using the same word and says, come and see that actually I have taken my throne and you're part of it. Come and go lead my sheep. Go love my flock. It's jarring to have Palm Sunday. Uh, They call it Palm and Passion Sunday because we know that most of us uh, can't spend much time on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, right? Uh, The the ancient church considered uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter vigil on Saturday, and then sunrise on Sunday, and then worship on Sunday to be one continuous service. And we just know that 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 is not the reality. And so we need this jarring moment that you go from everybody shouting praise to Jesus to Almost everybody denying him. We need Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday for Easter to be what it is. We can't skip from uh, either Hosanna or Blessed is the King straight to, Look, he reigns! Or else the reign means something totally different. I told Bill it'd be either eight minutes or 28 minutes, and somehow I've gotten to 27 minutes and nine seconds and got us to the table. They wanted a throne room that was lavish and full of gold, a throne room where he would go up and they would sit at his right and left, and instead, they get a dinner table with bread and cup. A mysterious place where... um, where Jesus will meet them and Jesus will meet the church throughout the ages, a place where uh, he gives us might and power to go and be humble, a place where our meal is not fit for a king but is instead literally the body and blood of the king, a place where 
Um, all the promises of scriptures come to fulfillment. A place where everything they had hoped actually happens in ways they could never imagine and many couldn't even understand. A table where uh, we are invited to be part of that story. I'm a, I, love, I love to tell the story because I'm a story person. Our scriptures are entirely story-based. And, and the Jesus movement originally was not about uh, a, a set of, um, of things you assent to, but about a story that you saw yourself as part of. And at this table, we enter into that story and we go out and declare the goodness of God. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We take on Jesus' ministry of uh, hope and reconciliation and liberation. We are fed for it at the table and sent out by the Spirit. Amen? And as much as we want to jump to uh, the Lord be with you and also with you, we declare that Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess to, uh, before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our